This morning we will be in several passages. We will begin in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. I will uh, um, bring, I brought it up on the screen. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart, a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we have been, for the last several weeks, considering this question of the intercession of Christ. What it means for Jesus to be our intercessor. And we've been looking at uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, that uh, document that was written as our confessional uh, statement, uh, it, written in the 1640s, and, uh, and they wrote uh, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then they attached to it uh, what's called the Larger Catechism and the Shorter Catechism, the larger being the longer one and the shorter being the shorter one. Uh, the larger one being for adults, the shorter one being for middle schoolers, uh, who has uh, just remind us that is what seminary students like myself had to memorize was the middle school one. So, but we're smarter now because we have iPhones, so we're good. All right, so, uh, and, uh, uh, and so the larger catechism is a wonderful tool. We've noticed in our officer training how the larger catechism and the, and the, and the confession almost function as kind of commentaries on each other. And whereas one will go into greater depth than the other, depending on which, what the question is. And so question 55 of the larger catechism summarizes for us the intercessory ministry of Christ. And we've been meditating upon that the last several weeks. And so we ask the question, what is, uh, what, uh, what is Christ's intercession? How does Christ make intercession? And we've, be, and we've answered that uh, in, in that um, Jesus uh, has uh, he uh, he has by coming to faith in Jesus Christ he has justified us he has declared us righteous in the sight of God and pardoned us of all our sins and adopted us into the family of God and all by faith through no works on our part through no merit of our own and so we live as Christians. But then we recognize, even in our Christian life, that we struggle with sin. We fall into sin again. We fall to temptation. And the Holy Spirit, by his word, reveals to us, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, we fall into plain temptation. But even then, uh, as we walk in our Christian life, the Holy Spirit will reveal to us things that we didn't realize were sinful. Maybe aspects of our personality. We're quick to anger. We're, 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 we're quick to jump into profane language when we're frustrated or upset and we start realizing there's some things that are sinful that we didn't quite realize were sinful in how we respond and live in the world um uh, and and we uh, but as we do so when we, as we be, god slowly begins to reveal to us the the depth of our sinfulness uh we we might begin to wonder if god even really likes us if he really loves us Knowing what he knows about us uh, in our inner sinfulness. Now, the thing is, is that he already knew that. The thing is, we didn't know how sinful we were. 
God did. But God's revealing it to us. And he's like, no, it's not a surprise to me. It's just a surprise to you, right? It's a surprise to the pastor, you know, to find out, oh, I'm that sinful. And God's like, yeah, you're that sinful. But uh, my son is that good as well. And so, but how do we know that we can really go to God in prayer? How can we know that our prayers are making it through uh, to the Lord? Does God really care about the stuff that we do for him, the way that we serve him in, in the church, whether it's preaching or teaching or, 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 or cleaning or, or, setting up or, or handing out donuts or straightening chairs or, or, or whatever it is, like it, our service to God, uh, it's, it's, does God actually care about it? Or the things, and if he does care about it, will he accept it? Will he receive it? Uh, and, and when we show up at the end, is God actually going to be happy to see us? I'm putting these questions in kind of some imprecise language and imprecise theological terms because, let's be honest, we're not always thinking in precise theological language, right? We're not always thinking in perfectly rational uh, 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 means and methods, But the one thing that all these questions have in common is, is the threat that is posed by doubt in the Christian life. That's the thread that they hold, they reveal the doubt that begins to creep in into the lives of believers, of Christians. These doubts arise from the presence of sin and, the, and our wrestling with it, our war against it in our lives, and our failure to even fight it, fight against it sometimes. And what the, the authors of the larger catechism are telling us is that the word of God, uh, is, it, it's, it speaks to the intercessory work of Christ, and it addresses through Jesus and his intercession all the doubts that we have as Christians. And so in, in, this, in this question, we've been answering this question, how does Christ make intercession? We have already considered the nature of Christ's work as our intercessor, his right to be the intercessor, uh, what he actually does as our intercessor. But now, consider the things that the authors of the, of the catechism there say that Christ procures for us. The things which Jesus obtains with care or effort for his people. And the catechism lists three things that Jesus procures for us. A quiet conscience, number one. Secondly, access to God. And third, acceptance by God. We'll look at each of those this morning. First, Jesus procures for us what they call the quiet of conscience. That is, the scriptures tell us that through Jesus, we have peace with God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, the apostle says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We must remember that apart from Christ, there is no peace with God available. There is only hostility with God. And that is not God's fault, that is our fault. As the scriptures make clear, as Paul makes clear four chapters earlier in the same letter in Romans chapter 1. 
It is man who rebels and sins against the living God, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. The state of being actively hostile to someone else is called enmity. There is a state of enmity that was introduced between God and man by the serpent's temptation of the woman and the fall of Adam as he succumbed to sin. This is the state of the world since Adam and Eve, as we confessed earlier in the service, and as we see in the scriptures, as we see at work in the world. Uh, man is by nature at war with God, is against God, dismissive of God, desires to put himself above God, and condemnation is rightly threatened against man for this. In a sense, you could say that our great problem is that we do not have peace with God by nature. The apostle says in another letter that we are by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But God in his mercy promised to reverse the course of humanity. To remove the enmity between himself and his people. And to introduce enmity between man and Satan through the Messiah. And this he did. Paul says in Colossians 1.19, Through Jesus God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And how is he doing this? Paul says in verse 20 that Jesus does it by making peace by the blood of his cross. When we say peace, we don't just mean the absence of war. This is not merely a ceasefire or the silence that comes between reloading. The blood of Christ on the cross has brought peace, restored the relationship that we had with God, and restored it and moved it from a relationship of condemnation to a relationship not only of forgiveness and mercy and love, but of glorification. Christian, do you understand that in Jesus you have peace with God, even if though at times you may not feel it? You have peace with God. He is not at war with you. And the catechism goes out of its way to make the point here, this very real point, that we have peace with God even though we fail regularly and daily. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why do we have our Bibles? Why do we have the stories and the examples and the commands in the scriptures and the the letters of the New Testament? 
The scriptures have many uses, certainly, teaching us our holy history, the reality of redemption, the promises of future glory. But one purpose of the scriptures is immensely practical. We have the writings of the scriptures so that we would not sin. But knowing that kind of bothers you a little bit, doesn't it? Because we sin. So I'm not supposed to sin? Well, I know that I'm not supposed to, but I also know it's impossible for me not to because I just did it this morning. So am I just letting God down now? Is he just mad at me all the time? None at all. Because there are these twin errors that we make, that Christians make all the time in the Christian life. These two errors. That just, we just kind of, it's like we just swing back and forth. And I mention them a lot when I'm preaching. But then on the one hand, we have this tendency towards legalism, seeking God's favor by our merit. Uh, and then on the other hand, this lazy, thoughtless attitude towards God's commands and holiness. And we just kind of vacillate between them. But the Bible doesn't endorse either of them. Rather, the scriptures again and again call God's people to absolute perfection in holiness and obedience. And then also provides the means of atonement for failing to meet that very standard. We see it right here in this passage where John says he is writing this letter with the immediate purpose that his readers and his hearers would not sin. He's saying, I don't want you to sin. I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. He wants them to avoid sin. He wants them to obey God in faith. But he also knows that believers, true Christians, do in fact sin. They fall for temptation. They buy in. They at times say, I know it's wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. It happens. There are true Christians who get sent to jail. And so he also states that even if we do sin, we have an advocate before the Father in Jesus Christ. But this advocate isn't just there to try to get us out of a jam this time. He is is there as the one who has already paid the penalty for our sins. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins. And the point here is rather simple. Jesus procures the quiet of our conscience as our intercessor, not only for our sins of the past that we may feel occasional shame for as we, as we call them to mind, but he, he brings us peace with God as our intercessor because he intercedes for us having paid the penalty for our sins today. And for the sins that we will commit tomorrow. We don't need to live in fear that God will hate us a week from now. Or a year from now. Or ten years from now. In Jesus Christ we have peace with God. Why? Not because we obeyed God today. But because we have a Savior in heaven today. That is why we have peace with God. Because Jesus is in heaven interceding for us as our advocate. 
So this means that when we think about God, we don't need to be disturbed. Nor should we hesitate to confess our sins before him because we have Jesus there as our advocate. And I quoted it last week and I keep re-quoting it because I love this quote now uh, from Stephen Charnock. That God is more desirous to forgive you of your sin than you are to sin. The question is, do we believe that? And do we want to let go of our sin? Do we actually want to repent and turn from it? Or are we trying to hold on to it in some weird and twisted way? But no, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So he procures for us as our intercessor. And he gives to us peace with God. Secondly, Jesus procures for us access to God. And there's two passages that we're going to delve back into the book of Hebrews. No surprise there because that is the the the... the, the book par excellence of, uh, of the intercessory ministry of Christ. Christ is our high priest. Two passages. First, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence, uh, based upon Jesus as our high priest, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then the passage we read at the beginning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What the, what the author is teaching us of Hebrews there is teaching us that is that in Jesus we have certain access to the throne of grace not the throne of wrath but the throne of grace because there is a creeping fear that can slowly enter into the minds and hearts of many Christians as they come to church week after week that while God may have been accepting of us when we first came to faith that now that we have been here a while and he has seen what shoddy Christians we are, and he knows it, who can hide it from him? That he must certainly be disappointed in us, frustrated with us, even disgusted with us. And now we are in need. We hesitate to go to God because what right do we have after he has done so much for us? And we have failed him so miserably. And the legalist part of us consoles us, attempts to anyway, to say, well, uh, do some good deeds before you go to the Lord. Get consistent with your tithing. Increase your Bible reading. Stop doing that habitual sin for a little while. Get some holiness momentum Build up that resume a little bit. Brush your teeth a little more before you go see the dentist. You know what I'm saying, right? Then go to God. Then he'll be happy to see you. The lawless part of us seeks to try to convince us that our sins are really not that bad. In fact, you know, what we did really wasn't sin if you really think about it. You know, God probably doesn't really care that much about it. And God really wants us to be happy. And, uh, but, we, but we know that our brief sporadic obedience will not satisfy the demands of holiness and neither do we really buy the lie that God is less holy than he is or that he demands less of us than he does. 
So how do we get to the throne? Did we just say like Esther going before the throne of Artaxerxes? Well, I, if, I guess I'll go and if I die, I die. Is that what we do? No. The ministry of Christ has granted us access, uh, the access that Esther didn't even know she had, but even an access that is greater than what she did have. Pales in comparison to anything, any kind of access that we have in Jesus. Because Jesus not only procured pardon for our sins so that God the Father, uh, you know, would you know, maybe give us another chance. Or that he would just let us in the back door if, if, if we would just be quiet and behave like a good boy. Jesus has granted us access to the throne of God. And what is more, he's granted us access to the throne of grace. That he's just longing to give to us. And why, we must ask, does the author of Hebrews want to make it clear to Christians that you, because of Jesus, you, dear Christian, have access to the throne of grace? Why would you need that? Because you need grace. Because we need grace. And the author of Hebrews is saying, and you have it. You have access to it. And the access, you know, the access, you know, you know, key card that gets you in the door is not yours. It's the sons. Because in Jesus, we approach the throne with boldness. Imagine for a moment that you were in dire need of a car. You had one, but it's all rusted out and busted and just, you know, leaking stuff everywhere. And you can't, you can't drive it. It's only good for the scrapyard. I know you got that friend that says, I can fix it. But they're not coming. Okay? They're never coming. They haven't come for six months. They're still not going to come fix it. All right? Just move on. But, uh, but then your friend, another friend comes along and says, you know what? I have another car for you. And you're like, sweet. If it's got four wheels and an engine, I'm good. All right? That's all I need. And so, and so, you know, just get me on the road again. And so, and then they show up, though, and they've got a completely outfitted Cadillac or truck or whatever thing you're into. Uh, uh, that's, you know, they're, they're, what your, your dream car that you're thinking of. They pull up in that, and they hand you the keys, and you're like, uh-uh. <laughs> There's no way you're just giving this to me. Like, you, you, maybe you were going to give me a ride in it? Like, <laughs> or, 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 or your friend's coming with the real car behind you because this is your car? But then you find out this is the car that you're getting. As poor of an illustration that, that may be, Jesus doesn't just give us some distant access to God that our prayers might just slip through the cracks. He doesn't grant us access if we'll just come crawling on our hands and knees. Jesus procures access to the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence. That's a kind of a strange thing to talk about for people who are saved by grace, but it makes perfect sense when we realize that our confidence is not born of arrogance. It's not in ourselves. It is a confidence born of our Savior. That, that it's a confidence that comes from Him because He is our intercessor, because He is the one sitting on that throne and inviting us in. This is why we know that our prayers make it through. Whether they are 
flowery, beautiful prayers as we're just in the moment, just meditating in the goodness and wonder, wonder, uh, wonder, uh, the, the wonderfulness of God, or whether they are mournful sobs because we cannot utter the words and the Spirit interceding for us at all times with groanings too deep for words. Our prayers make it because of Jesus and because of His Spirit. Jesus is our intercessor who gets us access to the help of heaven and brings us fully when we, uh, into the God's kingdom where we won't need to pray anymore. Jesus procures for us quiet of conscience. He procures for every Christian access to God. And, and third... Jesus procures for us acceptance by God. Two things here. That he procures acceptance of our persons. That we are accepted by God. You, individually, are accepted by God. Ephesians 1, verses, uh, verses 6 through 10 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his glorious grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. There are many, many passages that we could go to to establish this truth. Yet, through the, through, yet though the, the scriptural support is strong and our faith is weak, we are always in need of reminding. We need to know that in Christ we have the forgiveness of our sins that comes through nothing less than the blood of Jesus. That this was a glorious Wealth of goodness and mercy, I love that word, lavished upon us. It's not foolishly on God's part, but in all wisdom and insight. Not that we deserve one bit of it, but that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. His eternal purpose, which he set forth in Christ. His plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth in His Son. Well, what does that mean for you and I? It means that God, for the purpose of His eternal glory, has set about sacrificing that which is most precious to Him in order that He would receive you as an object of His mercy and love and to receive you as His precious treasure. That's what it means. It means, dear doubting Christian, that in Jesus you are accepted by God. Not just the good parts that you let everybody see, but all of you. It means that on account of His grace, God delights in you and gladly receives you now and will receive you in glory. The Scriptures even say that now... God sings over his people as we rest in our sleep. 
It's always a strike. It, was, it made me uncomfortable when I first heard that. That God sings over his people. He delights in them. But you know this if you've ever been a parent and you go up and, you, and your children are asleep and you're always, they're so peaceful when they're sleeping, right? <laughs> and so, uh, but as a parent, you delight in them as they sit there resting. Now, in truth, I mean, if any, if any adult does that to another adult, that's just creepy, right? That's stalking. It's a crime in, some place, in certain instances. But, uh, but when you do it to your own children, it's perfectly fine. It's sweet and adorable. But you delight in them and how the Lord delights in his people. He delights in you. And secondly, and this is an often neglected thing, misunderstood, I would say, and this is the very last thing here, is that not only are you accepted, but our works are accepted. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God might receive me, as we've established here, but certainly I can do nothing for him. That statement there. God may receive me, but certainly I can do nothing for him. It's a both a true and false statement. Okay? It's true in that God does not need us to do anything for him as if he is deficient if we don't contribute. As if God is somehow lacking if, if we don't make whatever contribution we're making. Whether it's praise or giving or service or whatever it is. As if God is somehow needy. Okay? That, so, so he doesn't need us in that way. But that statement is wrong in that we can do things in service of God and for the good of his people. What is more, the scriptures say that God will reward his people for their obedience of faith as we sacrifice and serve the Lord. Now, we must readily acknowledge these works that we do, the things that we do in service to God, big, small, great, whatever, lots of very sacrificial to minimally sacrificial, these things are not good in and of themselves. The works themselves are shot through with corruption. But we offer them as spiritual sacrifices unto God. And so, um, and what Sinclair Ferguson, the uh, Presbyterian theologian, he was, he was uh, speaking on, on this, talking about this uh, uh, in um, this point, and he was highlighting how he said, you know, his daughter, uh, you know, gave him uh, a painting. And he said, now, if I was to take that painting and put it before, um, you know, the, the, the art critics, you know, at, at, at a major museum, uh, you know, they, they would have some, you know, colorful things to say. You know, they would reject it, more than likely. He said, but for he, him, he treasures it. Why? He said, because it, it may not be a Van Gogh in terms of its masterpiece quality. But Van Gogh did not paint the lilies in love for him. But his daughter painted this in love for him. And he receives it as though it were a masterpiece. He receives it. With joy. And so God receives our works, our prayers, our songs, our tithes, and our offerings, our daily lives. And Jesus takes these works 
and, and which in themselves would actually bring us before God in judgment if we tried to earn our salvation by them. But he takes them and it, through his intercessory ministry makes them acceptable before God and God even rewards us for them. The acceptance of our person and works addresses a common fear that many church people in the church have. Because we are, at the root, a people who are terrified of being truly and fully known. This is the terror of getting married, right? To have someone who knows you better than anyone else. They know when you're fibbing. They know when you're running. They know when you're, you're they just, they know it. And you know they know it. And that really is annoying. Hypothetically. But somebody who knows your gifts and the things you, you can offer to the world and your best, but also who knows your absolute worst, who knows your faults, who knows your failures. That's the terror of marriage. But the blessing of marriage is to have that same person who knows all that and looks you in the eye and loves you, accepts you, commits themselves to you, and desires to be with you for their life. How much more with God? How much more with the great intercessor that we have with Jesus Christ? How much more of a husband do we have as the bride, the church, with our bridegroom, Jesus? How much more does he know our sins and our faults and our evils, yet he desires to be with us, to glorify us, to love us and reward us? All of this comes through the intercessory ministry of Christ. No wonder Jesus said that John the Baptist is, the, is that the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, even though John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. In Christ, we have peace with God. We have access to God. We have acceptance by God. Because we have an advocate who declares his will to save us, who answers all accusations that are brought against us, and he always stands in heaven, never to be dethroned in his humanity and the merit of, in the merit of his obedience and his sacrifice. And says we have such a high priest, such a savior, such a husband as the church, let us glorify him, worship him, and trust in him because we know he always lives to intercede. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have the Savior, Jesus Christ, our glorious and wonderful Savior. We pray you would forgive us and help us, Father, for we are weak and needy, prone to forget the great truths of the gospel and the ministry, even the ministry of Christ to make it lesser, to make us in our what we offer greater. But Lord, may we view our lives in the great light of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his intercessory ministry for our sake. And may you be glorified. May your church be helped and strengthened. And may we rejoice, Father, as we go out from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.